0: hello welcome along it's the prevention is the new cure podcast this is episode five we're here discussing all things nhs and health related with that political twist i am steve brine i am the mp for winchester and hampshire and i'm the chair of the health and social care select committee in the house of commons
1: Hi, I'm Helen Stokes-Lampard. I'm a general practitioner in the Midlands. I'm also chair of the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges and a body called the National Academy for Social Prescribing.
0: Very good. Now, the Academy, since we last met Helen, has been busy. I know we're not Mm. going to talk massively about strikes this time, but we have to mention it in the sense that the Academy has made an intervention
1: yeah, very small, subtle and very carefully worded intervention, Steve, where, in essence, we just ask both parties to get around the table and start talking in a constructive way. Because um, that would be a really helpful first step until you have uh, people talking. You can't, you know, the talks about talk stage. You're certainly not going to get onto negotiating. And um, that's the bit we're really missing at the moment.
0: And this is on the junior doctors.
1: Of course, sorry, should have clarified. Yes, about junior doctors, the academy is for medical yeah. royal colleges, i.e., doctors. We certainly haven't spoken out about any of the other many strikes that are going on at the moment affecting healthcare.
0: Uh, well done, you. I mean, I said on the media last week in support of what you you did. I mean, look at the end of the day, if they if they want to talk to the to, to anybody that anybody wants to be the intermediary to get talks going, then this is great. And you know, if you guys can move that on, I mean, I, I know. They're, they've said about preconditions, but I mean, actually, there are no strikes announced at the moment. There are no future junior doctor strikes announced, so I would have thought, you know, that everybody could sort of say face and get around the table. And um, and if the academy can can host that, move it on as you did last time when there was a junior doctor strike, then they should take your hand off
1: thanks, Steve. Well, we're we're there to help anywhere we can, whether it's helping them getting talking with another independent party, whether we can help practically, we gladly do it. At the end of the day, what everyone wants is to see a resolution to this. It's what doctors, junior doctors who goodness knows have suffered enough uh, want. Mm. It's what the rest of the NHS wants. And it's certainly what patients want. My mum is telling me that all the time. Let's get this sorted.
0: Get this sorted, Helen. So anyway, look, this is, believe it or not, as I said, this is episode five. So we are, um, last time we talked smoking, didn't we? We talked vaping. We had yeah. Deborah Arna on from She's Ash. great. Um, we talked a lot about strikes last time. We talked about Parkinson's disease and some new um, new tech to, to manage that condition. Thanks so much for all your feedback. Uh, really appreciate it. Um, if you like this podcast, please follow us. Please click like on your podcast podcast platform of choice because that really helps now loads of things to talk about this time Helen uh, where are we going to start
1: I think we should start with vaccination this week let's talk about something quite different vaccination okay. if there was ever anything which was the ultimate preventative it's vaccination probably the single most effective thing we can do to prevent disease is vaccinate ourselves vaccinate our kids against a whole range of things and I know this is something that's been on your agenda at the health select committee
0: yeah so you know as you know we are doing a big inquiry on prevention i think i said last time we have 10 work streams one of which is vaccination because i i I think it is probably the most effective health intervention you can make um and so i guess the uk's like this current immunization schedule if you like in the uk protects against 14 different infections so you know measles men 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 in beautifully put Steve Uh, polio, um, you know, and, and that's, that's what we do. Um, But what we heard and we had, some of the big companies in so we had somebody from the british pharmaceutical industry we had someone from sanofi um we had somebody from moderna and then we had jenny harris from the uk health security agency and you know we talked about all of the, obviously the good things that went on during covid but there are declining rates of uptake and uh, you know you can't get around that and i mean people may have seen some of the coverage that that happened since our session about you know some of the serious diseases from the 1950s so you know polo diphtheria measles are on the rise and you know we heard we heard that during our session now they were really serious diseases weren't they um and we got to stay on top of this through vaccination you i'm guessing see this in the surgery Um, Uh, do you see a rise in these conditions in the surgery helen
1: it, so, look, Steve, you've, you've touched on so many things there, or so, and I'm not going to pick you up on your pronunciation of meningococcal, but tutorials are available on request.
0: Easy for you to say.
1: <laughs> so, look, um, you're right. 14 different diseases that we vaccinate against very effectively, and vaccination in the main is incredibly safe and incredibly straightforward. You know, it, it's that. And I think if the COVID program has shown us anything, it's just how amazingly effective it can be. You know, the millions and millions of lives that have been saved through the vaccination program. Notwithstanding, we have a persistent narrative by a very small but very vocal minority um, who are just opposed to vaccination in any way, shape, or form. For me, and to be honest with you, they've always been there. We can perhaps talk pick up in a minute about why that's a thing. But for me, the group that I I want to help most are those who don't take up the offer, who are not opposed to vaccination, but for whatever reason, don't bring their children forward, don't come forward themselves, because it's inconvenient to do so. Their lives are chaotic and they find it really hard to fit in with the way the NHS works. Or their lives are so troubled in many other ways that this is so low on the priority. And this is where the NHS really has to flex to reach out and make it easy to be vaccinated. We need to take the vaccination to them, be where they are. We've had a huge amount of learning from the pandemic in this.
0: Do you not think that that is part of poor health? So, you know, if you have it's a health inequalities issue isn't it so Absolutely. if you have poor health you yeah. know, you may you may smoke you may have poor oral health yeah the fact that you've got poor vaccine health as well probably shouldn't surprise us i mean we certainly talked in the select committee before about you know inequality and in coverage of vaccine you know yeah. there's age there's geography there's social economic status ethnicity religion mm-hmm. you know and, and the so-called hard to reach groups but you're right the nhs has got a them they've got to meet them where they are so yeah. the nhs are currently working on a um a new uh, future vaccination strategy which sounds good uh and we'll, we'll obviously be looking at that when it comes out what are the big vaccination conversations that you have with uh, your patients then at the moment
1: so there's a couple i mean the, 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 there was the headlines only a few days ago about this drop-off in the 14-year-old children who are supposed to have a booster, um, a booster of the three-in-one, which is the diphtheria, tetanus, polio, all that stuff. But you, it's their fifth uh, and final booster that then gives them lifelong protection. And there's been a serious dip in that one. Obviously, due to the disruption during COVID when the schools were closed, it caused a delay. But the catch-up, despite the catch-up being rigorously applied a lot of kids haven't participated in it. So there's a big, there's a chunk, there's a, a cohort we need to go for. Uh, and if you know people who haven't had that vaccination, then that is got through the um, the school nursing programme and the school vaccination programme. Ask, ask your school nurse what's going on there. But there was another vaccine that's given at the same time, the menacque, so the meningitis, and it protects against four different types of meningitis and acque, just A, C, W and Y, just different variants, a horrible word. But but that can be got through your gp if you're up to the age of 25 and so this is the one that there was a big when it first came out was given to kids as they were just kids how would i say that young people as they were heading off to university or leaving home sort of about 18 but now it's given younger in school and um, it's just of all the destructive terrible illnesses that somebody can get you know totally life changing obviously uh, sometimes fatal is meningitis and to think we can protect it with a really straightforward immunization i just urge people to get yeah get i remember kids, get this
0: early on in my time as an mp i remember this being an issue through universities and student unions mm. so you're saying that it's now generally a bit earlier on so i, I remember somebody somebody lost their life when i was at university from yeah. who lived in our whole residence from from meningitis so it's incredibly serious and you are saying a simple jab and we you, you know you can avoid that
1: one of my most Powerful experiences as a junior doctor, Steve. So I was a medical house officer, just a few months into my role. And I, um, was dealing with a girl with meningitis, a 19-year-old girl who was brought into the A and E department. She was staying in the area on holiday, and she was she was unresponsive. Something strange was going on, and the initial reaction was, is, "Well, has she taken drugs? What's going on here?" And I remember just looking at her, and every instinct screaming, "She might have meningitis. Let's do something," and sort of calling out for the right drugs and so on. And it was a good call because we saved it because as we were giving other the drugs, the awful meningitis rash started breaking out on her. We got into intensive care and she survived and did very well. But when you've seen it and in your case, you know, you knew somebody who died, it never leaves you. And the tragedy, the tragedy of it being missed or the tragedy of somebody becoming to such severe harm it's such a preventable thing. And it's, it's the why wouldn't you uh, is the yeah. way to turn it around. Do you think and...
0: that there's some sort of complacency? because It's almost like it's chicken and egg. Because disease rates are low in some yeah. of the conditions that we've mentioned, then there becomes complacency that they've gone away. But of course, they're only low because of the vaccination rates. And so the only reason we have control of them is because we've been doing vaccines. So we we sort of got to, got to keep going, haven't we?
1: Absolutely. So measles is a case in point. I hadn't seen measles for years, possibly decades, and then I saw cases of measles last year. It was kind of, what was it? Those eighteen months ago. And I was just, at first, I was thinking, what am I seeing? And then there's a sudden realization: oh my gosh, you know, it, this is actually measles, it, it, a totally preventable condition. So these are, I and mean, I can't say this so strongly enough, but um, the con- the adverse consequences of these illnesses cannot be underestimated. You do not want your child to die or to be severely maimed. You don't want them to become infertile. You don't want them to have become deaf. And these are the complications of these common illnesses that are common in countries where vaccination isn't there. We have this free gift that we give called immunization, please let's take it up and i think as an nhs we have a responsibility to reach out and get to those who are not taking up their immunizations to make it so on that possible. andrew
0: um, sir andrew pollard who mm. you know is chairman of the joint committee on vaccination immunization he gave evidence to the committee last week and he called for a task force to improve vaccination rates in communities with low uptake you know yes. he said that you know if you think about when you think about the pandemic and you think about what what we did well as a country it was creating the vaccine, rolling out the vaccine, helping the rest of the world. We, you know, we led the world there, didn't we? And that was because we had a real national effort. And what he was saying to us is, you know, we need to keep the spirit of that national effort. And you know really really push home that advantage if you like um with communities where maybe they are harder to reach and we need to find better ways of doing that and that needs a national task force to do it and i i thought he spoke very well you can follow it all all back online of course can we just talk about hpv vaccine as well yeah because i wanted to Um, raise
1: that
0: as well so hpv you know i have a daughter and They were given it at school and then given the booster at school. When I was a health minister, when I was a health minister, um, (laughs) I extended the HPV vaccine to boys. um, Hallelujah. And I, you know, so much lobbying I had on that. And... You know, it was a tough battle, I'll be honest. You know, it was a tough battle to get the get it get it signed off and get it funded. But I'm really, really proud that we did that. And I, I fingers crossed, I think it should save a lot of lives. But just tell us clinically, HPV, the, the virus, what does yeah. it do?
1: Okay. So first of all, I was one of the people lobbying you, Steve, for men to be well. included in the vaccine programme because I completely agree. It, it, it's So HPV uh, virus affects the cells at transition points in the body and it increases the chance of cancer. So where one cell type meets another cell type, there's a higher chance of problems. And if you've got this, you've had this virus, it seems to uh, to permit or trigger changes that can lead to particularly cervical cancer, but also anal cancer, vulval cancer, oral cancers, essentially from your mouth to your anus um, and your mouth through to the your, your vagina And in the track there, wherever there's a change of tissue, there's a risk of a cancer that HPV can trigger. The biggest killer was cervical cancer, but by the vaccination program helps protect and reduce all those other cancers. So in men who have sex with men, particularly, obviously, it's the anal and genital cancers that they're protecting against. But because men pass the virus on to women by reducing the viral load in the whole of society, everyone benefits. So. It's a good thing. It's a safe, very well-established vaccine. They're improving it in time as more variants are coming in. Then we've already seen the benefits of cervical cancer is falling. Another of my powerful experiences as a junior doctor was, see, I was 23 at the time. We were a firm of four female medical students doing obstetrics and gynaecology. And a girl who was also 23 was dying of cervical cancer in the hospital bed. And when this vaccine programme came about, I remember... Just thinking about her and thinking about her face and thinking about her mother and how I'd wished this had been 20 years sooner. And again, please, let's do everything we can to get this rolled out for all our young people, for everyone's sake.
0: Yeah. And just just who, who wrote that. Uh, and just finally on this, we talked a bit last week in the committee about anti-vax. And you know, during the pandemic, there was a lot of noise about that. There was a debate in the house recently about um the new who pandemic preparedness plan that the world health organization are putting in place and there was a lot of lobbying of mps from constituents who want us to stay anywhere away from that and uh, some of that is driven by by anti-vax my theory about the anti-vax movement is that i don't think it's any bigger than it ever was I just think it's louder than it ever was because it's been amplified. And you know, as an MP, you're always taught don't put pictures of graffiti in your leaflets because it just encourages graffiti. And I just wonder: the more that it's covered by the media, does it become self-fulfilling? I mean, do you honestly get people in your surgery who who are you know come come into you with conspiracy theories about vaccinations and that they're the you know some of the stuff that you read online about the COVID vaccine? Do you get that?
1: Very rarely, Stephen, so I think your point about the, I think social media has been such an amplifier of loud, aggressive, uh, antagonistic voices. And I do think there are a lot of people out there who love a conspiracy theory. The ones that actually make it to the consulting room where we speak with are the confused ones, are the frightened ones, the ones who've read or heard something and they want clarification and they want to right. go to somebody they That's trust. That's perfectly
0: reasonable, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and they want to go to somebody they trust to decipher it, to demystify it for them. I mean we've had scares, I mean, there was the terrible scandal with the MMR vaccine, gosh, 20 odd years ago now. Uh yeah, the Andrew Wakefield scandal where there was misinformation um, and erroneous research published, which caused a lot of concern amongst parents and I mean the one thing you want to do as a parent is protect amongst for all of the things you protect your child, and so the thought that the MMR vaccine could be causing harm did cause a lot of confusion. And we're still demystifying that one. Although I must say, I've done a lot less about the last few years than I was doing sort of 15 years ago, but still until 15 years ago, it was a massive thing. And occasionally you will get parents coming up saying, oh, I'm going to pay for my child to have vaccines privately when there isn't a shred of evidence. I mean, what I always say in that situation is, look, of all the things you can spend money on your child, take the same money, put it in an investment fund for them for when they grow up and give them the MMR free of charge on the NHS, because not a shred of evidence that that one's going to help use the money in another way to help them later on
0: yeah Okay, welcome back. You're listening to Prevention is the New Cure podcast with myself, Steve Bryan, and uh, Dame Dr. Helen Stokes-Lampard. Now, (laughs) we were going to, yes, uh, we were going to talk about dentistry, weren't we? So we record this on Tuesday afternoon this week, and um, we have been discussing today in the Select Committee, actually, our final bit of our NHS dentistry inquiry and we had the minister in and we had the chief dental officer and we had some people from Health Watch, and we had uh, one of the integrated care boards, actually the Hampshire one, which is the area that I represent. Now, the British Dental Association did some research at the back end of last year which said that 90% of dental practices in the UK were not accepting new NHS patients. I had a letter uh, earlier this year from my dentist um, where my wife and kids and i go saying that with the heaviest of hearts that 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 our dentist is giving up doing nhs work and this is happening a lot and people do not have access to nhs dentistry that then impacts on the acute sector because people turn up at a and e with dental problems you know there's a story on the bbc website today about a lady who who took uh, a number of her own teeth out 13, he, of, her own 13 teeth. of her own teeth out unlucky for her um, oh. you know these are horrendous stories aren't they and I just i just i just do not know what the answer is here i asked the minister what is the ambition because in 1999 tony blair in his party conference speech said that um everybody would have access to an nhs dentist no matter where they live within 2 years that was his retail offer. And, you know, it didn't happen, but it was clear. It was, a, it was a pretty clear offer. So I asked the minister today, you know, what is the ambition when it comes to NHS dentistry for, for our government? And he said, you know, the ambition is that everybody, if they want, when they want it, if they want it, will have access to an NHS dentist. And yeah. I mean, you know, fair play to him. That, that's a pretty, pretty big ambition. And I asked, you know, do, do you think that's remotely attainable? Um, And he said, yes. Now, the when to that was as soon as possible. But the workforce that is therefore leaving NHS dentistry, like my dentist, it it ain't ain't coming back. Um, So it's a big problem, isn't it?
1: It's a massive problem. And I mean, there are a whole range of reasons for it. Similar to the reasons why we've got discontent amongst junior doctors and nurses at the moment. There's so hard financial reasons. Um, NHS dentistry has quite an unusual contract, which hasn't kept up, with uh, the way, with, with the changes that have happened um, in costs, delivery of care, and there were good reasons why the contract was developed when it was, but it has served its time and needs a massive overhaul. Is my non-dental perspective on it? But Steve, it breaks my heart. For me, it's the harm we're doing to our children and young people here. Um, You know, it's bad enough when adults and older adults are suffering, but when our children are having to have all their teeth removed under general anaesthetic, all their baby teeth, um, and then their secondary teeth, because of appalling dental hygiene, as a nation, we have seriously got our priorities wrong. Do you know the single biggest cause for children to have a general anaesthetic is to have their teeth removed?
0: that that
1: breaks your heart, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, it does. I mean what do you know what worries me? Um you know I worry Helen. Um yeah. what worry what worries me um is that you know, take my dentist who has has made that move. Yeah. She hasn't done that lightly. I no. you know, it's been a huge wrench for her. And reading the letter that she wrote to patients very personal, you know, she she's not done this lightly. Yeah. So to do this, and you know, she came into dentistry to work in the in the public sector to then make that move because the contract doesn't work. And very, you know, very crudely put, you know, the contract is around UDAs units of dental activity. And so their point being is they don't get to work on preventative oral care, uh, which is obviously what we're, we're most interested in. They don't feel that they can spend that complex time with patients. And um, so they, so they make the move. My worry is that once they've made that move, even if we change the contract tomorrow, to, to exactly what the British Dental Association say dentists want to see. Even if we change it tomorrow, she isn't going to come back because she's made that mental break yes. with the NHS. And so I'm worried that, you know, yes, we do have lots of dentists in this country, but they're not working in, in uh In public sector practice, they're working in private practice. And, uh, you know, for many areas, parts of mine included, they can't afford, they can't afford to do to do private dentistry. So that's why I started the session asking the the minister, what is your ambition? Because I wanted to know whether that was still the ambition, everyone has that access and he said it was.
1: I mean, I think you're right. I think there is for a healthcare professional who's worked principally in the NHS to make the switch to move into private medicine exclusively is a huge psychological switch and to then to come back into it will take a heck of a lot more. I mean, you know, it's the heat has been slowly, slowly, slowly rising over time. But once you've got out of the hot water, you ain't getting back in when it's just a degree cooler. I mean, I think that yeah. you're you're a right there. It will take a big change. Yeah. yeah also- so Sarah um,
0: Sarah Hurley was giving evidence to us today, right. who is chief dental officer for yeah. for England and uh, and great 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 interesting person. I used to work with her when I was minister. She's um she's hopefully going to come on the pod and Good. talk about the whole issue about preventative oral health, which is you know that's how you make the NHS sustainable which is our, our raison d'etre of course and in her view she said this today you know that's how you make NHS dentistry attainable and sustainable is through prevention so and she sounds like in, she's talking our language
1: She sounds like she is and I'm looking forward to chatting to her can we throw in fluoridation of the water when we speak to oh her? yeah mm, very
0: really, controversial I mean,
1: big prevention it's actually not that controversial but anyway
0: <laughs> okay all right well i i I'm. Mean, we took powers in the health, current health and care act to put fluoride in the water but you know we were talking about conspiracy theories uh, earlier i mean boy yeah. does that get them going um but, it? but but I uh, really gets them going but boy you know de- dentists say that it's uh it's a it's a big thing and that we 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 should do it we've taken the powers to do it the <laughs> The new integrated care systems need to grasp that nettle, consult with their public and and get on with it.
1: And the Royal Colleges voted to support this, I think, 25, possibly 30 years ago. You know, this is not new. Anyway, we can come back to that one. Snacking. Snacking. Yay. Have you ever heard of activity snacking, Steve?
0: Uh, I mean, it seems like it sounds like an oxymoron to me. Uh, I mean, I'm constantly snacking um, and not necessarily doing that much activity, although I am very active because I don't stop walking. I mean, walking around the Palace of Westminster is quite a lot uh, of walking each week. But I'm guessing you're talking about something very different.
1: yeah. Activity snacking has made the news this week. And it's a concept where you do short bursts of activity, like like you have a a quick snack of sugar to keep you going energy-wise. You have a quick burst of exercise to reduce your sugar levels and keep them better controlled. So there's a, a small study, actually, a very small study, and just with patients who have type 1 diabetes. So that's where you really have to have insulin to survive. Often presents in youth. Um, and so quite a dif- different cohort. But even so, little small packets of activity can do wonders for your blood sugar. And so the phrase activity snacks is now coming into um, our parlance. But clearly, uh, you you touched on marathons and running back there. It's been the London marathon this week. So uh, that is no snack. That 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 is a 26 course gastronomic extravaganza uh, compared to an activity snack.
0: I see. Yeah, I can see the story that you, you you shared with us on our on our group before this. So Elizabeth Robertson, Dr. Elizabeth Robertson, director of research at Diabetes UK, which funded the study, says for people with type 1 diabetes, managing blood sugar levels day in, day out can be relentless. She said it's incredibly encouraging. These findings suggest that making a simple practical change, such as taking phone calls while walking or setting a timer to remind you to take breaks to avoid sitting for long periods could have a profound effect on blood sugar levels. It sounds logical, doesn't it? It sounds logical what she's saying.
1: Yeah I think what seems to have surprised the researchers was that the effect was so much greater than they they even hoped for Um, and that's great and it gives hope so not everybody can do massive amounts of activity but everybody can make time for short bursts of activity and of course what we hope is this can be extrapolated. There's plenty of good evidence that cumulatively we need to be doing lots of exercise during the week but it doesn't all have to be one and a half hour workouts at the gym or indeed running a
0: marathon yeah so of course it's been the marathon uh this weekend hasn't it and uh my good friend jeremy hunt my predecessor as chair of select committee was among a number of mps who ran it actually i mean mps can take up the option to run the marathon we you know we're we're very fortunate that we can do that and you know we raise i say we (laughs) i say we um (laughs) they raise quite a lot of money for charities and jeremy has been Ray, how he has time for this, Mr. Chancellor of the Exchequer. But anyway, he, he's been running the, the marathon again for the Royal Surrey charity, Royal Surrey yeah. County Hospital, that is in Guildford, which serves his constituents. He has raised, and I am not kidding you here, £27,500. Oh, that's
1: fantastic. I mean, that is
0: really... Yes, yeah, for a I new mean... cancer and surgical innovation centre at the Royal Surrey.
1: I mean, hats off to Jeremy. That, that's a brilliant achievement. And to anybody who's completed the marathon and fundraised twelve. For- a whole plethora of great causes. As you know, I'm a trustee of Macmillan Cancer, and I know they had they had hundreds of people running for them during the marathon. And as I was watching the coverage, I could see the bright green jerseys flashing past. Um, but, and I mean, that is a wonderful thing about the, mar- the London Marathon. Like so many other community marathons that they do raise money for great causes. And many of them, you know, close to our heart on the prevention agenda, but not everyone can run a marathon. Physically, it is a phenomenal challenge. Um, I shan't ask you about your own personal contribution to m- m- marathon running, Steve, but as I've never run a marathon, nor am I ever going to, I certainly can't speak from a position of superiority here.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I, do you know what? I was actually speaking to a colleague today who did the marathon and uh, an SMP MP did the marathon. And he was trying to tell me that uh, I could do it. And, and his thesis was that, you know, running 26 miles out in the Hampshire countryside on your own Even with Monty, my Labrador, running alongside me, which I'd just lose him because I couldn't keep up, um, is one thing. But doing it through the streets of London, the marathon, he said, you know, there's so many people. He's he's never known people saying, shouting, supportive things at MPs. I mean, that's got a lot of effort to go to to get that. Um, (laughs) But, uh, but I mean, I can get that from you, Helen. But he he said, you know, running through the streets of London with all those, all that support, you know, they literally just pull you along. They pull the energy that comes from the crowd. They pull you along, and. You know, he said, you know, a bit of running, a bit of walking, a bit of jogging. And before you know it, you're there. I mean, it sounds great. I mean, I'm not going to commit to doing this next year, but I, I like the positivity of what he gave me. It gives an
1: incredible community positivity for the 40,000 or so people who participate and the hundreds of thousands who are there lining the streets and the millions who are watching online. There is an incredible wave. But for me, I want to build on that positivity about doing exercise, doing exercise collaboratively with others, doing exercise to raise money for good causes, because all of us can do more physical activity. All of us can contribute in some way to help others with physical activity. And coming back to my activity, Snacks, your knees may not be up to walking half a mile, but you know. Do you remember Captain Tom? What Sir Captain Tom, as he oh, was? I
0: remember, him well. and the
1: inspiration he provided us. You know, he walked laps of his garden with his Zimmer frame, and um, if if he was proof um, <clears throat> that we can all do something, um, that that really was it. And he gave us all such hope. But I think, yeah, if if a marathon seems too scary, pick pick, pick a smaller mountain to climb. Pick yeah. your own mountain, but just but find the right size mountain for you and go for it. Don't give up completely.
0: Yeah. But anyway, we, we started talking about activity snacking, didn't we, and uh, and diabetes, and I talked about Diabetes UK. Well, Chris Askew, who is chief executive of Diabetes UK, is a good friend, and um, Chris is going to come on the pod as well, uh, and we're going to do a diabetes special at some point and talk about prevention of, of diabetes. Anyway, let's take a quick break, and then we'll open the surgery. Welcome back. Thanks for joining us. Time for this. That can only mean that the Hazelmere Health Centre surgery, which is where I got that from, uh, where I used to go when I was a little boy, far too regularly. But let's not get into that. Uh, that means the pod surgery is now open, Helen. Uh, so Dr. Helen and Dr. Steve, that is opening. We we got a couple of things today, which just want to want to touch on. Um, from Stephen Kahn, dear Stephen, Helen, be interested to see international comparisons back from scandinavia and vaping is just not a thing possibly higher number of adult smokers but it's not huge they sell snuff but i didn't see anyone partaking publicly <laughs> excellent nice to be able to walk around and not passively breathe in the smells of which he means the vaping so we talked a lot about vaping and smoking last week but he, so hmm, in another in, in scandinavian countries where he was vaping was not a thing
1: it's really interesting, isn't it? And I mean, I, he's obviously like me in terms of, I, I really can't stand the smells of the vapes, whereas you quite like the smells of some of them. I, perhaps you get a better class of vaping around where you live, Steve. But um, yeah, it's the sickliness of it that often makes me want to retch. But that's a really interesting observation. I honestly don't know what the international comparisons are. We need to ask Deborah back for the to give us that data. And I think there are huge societal variations. I mean, I was over in Spain a couple of months ago visiting family, and I was shocked just by how much smoking a really stinky, nasty cigarette is still publicly happening and seems so much more um, acceptable out there. So I think different cultures do have different views about it all. Um, But I honestly don't know. Let's just hope um, that... You know, everyone catches up and gets to the the games for the no smoking at all uh, state that we we aspire to.
0: Well, on that on that point, uh, Richard Madden, dear Stephen Helen, I'm about to try again to stop smoking, but going to use patches. I think it's better to stop altogether rather than go down the e-cig route. The most health benefits are achieved from complete cessation of smoking. Mr. Madden has hit the nail on the head.
1: He certainly has. If you can do it. Fantastic. It is incredibly hard to quit. And that's the problem. But I mean, if you can just stop completely and not use anything, absolutely. Go cold turkey and do it. It's just that a lot of people get very disheartened when they try to do that, which is why these alternatives can be helpful for some. But but yeah. Good luck, Richard. We, we're with you all the way.
0: Yeah. Good luck, Richard. OK, one more. Dr. Harvey, who's an intensive care and anaesthetist trainee working, he says, in the south of England um, or he or she. Um, just been listening to your latest podcast, mm-hmm. an area I feel you haven't touched on is the retention of the medical workforce. We're mm-hmm. losing highly skilled individuals, especially in recent years, due to poor workforce planning and, dare I say, pay degradation. How do we fix this? A nice simple question there. Yeah. Um, yeah, the you're, you're not wrong, Dr. Harvey. You, we, yes, we can train and recruit new um, new new medical staff, but we've got to keep hold of the ones we've got. And when the government's workforce plan comes out, which will be after the local elections, yeah. so I would imagine at some point in mid-May we're now hearing that that will come out, um, it has to address retention as much as it addresses recruitment. It right does. doctor
1: it absolutely does you know i was thinking about the metaphor of a, a, you know the workforce is you know a bucket and we can pour as much water we want into the top of the bucket but if it's pouring out through holes and cracks in the bucket it ain't ever going to be full so um we can have a bigger bucket we can have more buckets but you still want to block up all the leaks the the cheapest quickest and easiest way to improve the workforce situation is to improve retention so you hit the nail on the head I mean, we know about a lot of our juniors go off to um, our Antipodean countries, you know, New Zealand and and Australia, because there are huge inducements to do so and the quality of life weather is great. Um, But people have their homes here, their families here, the culture here that they know and love. And we don't have, we can't match the weather, but we can match a lot of the other things that they value about being able to practise medicine safely. Some of this is about being valued as individuals. Some of it's about reward and remuneration. But a lot of it is about being valued and the ability to practice safely. So, whether that's different ways of working, whether that's technology, whether that's actually the ability to have a hot meal in the middle of the night or to feel safe going to your car at two in the morning, all these things matter about the way we look. And this is certainly not just applicable to doctors, this is about right across healthcare professionals. So, yes, that workforce plan, there's a lot of hopes being pinned on it. Um, yeah. What I think we're going to have to see is, 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 I mean, we've got to be realistic about what we're going to get. um, And then it mustn't be a static document. It has to be a living document that is regularly updated and renewed and improved over time. It's great that we're going to get something. Um, I suspect it won't be the perfection that people are looking for just yet.
0: Mm, I think you're probably right. Well, we're going to close in a minute, but before we do, you you want to talk about poo again? Don't you? I want to
1: talk about poo again because I've oh. seen this. I think it's a great study. I know, I know, Steve. Forgive me. My grandfather was a plumber. My dad was a chemistry teacher. Do you know but Did you know? My dad took me to sewage treatment plants as a day trip when I was a kid. Other kids were going down the beach or to visit castles, and I went to a sewage treatment plant. That's why I turned out the way I did. Just saying
0: go to some beaches and you can see poo that's that's <laughs> but that, that's one of the debates we've been having in parliament today i had breakfast at number 10 this morning he says glibly um with the prime minister and um we were talking about the issue of combined storm overflows which is where Poop. the sewage system um overflows uh, when it's full of stormwater um anyway long story um and does great have breakfast a conversation
1: I, Did it? Uh, much i know food? i
0: know when i was invited to uh to breakfast to talk about sewage i I saw the irony of it, but anyway. um, So what is this story about? um, So very
1: quickly, there's a new research study coming up where people, it's only in England, but people are going to be asked to send samples of their poo to see if there are superbugs circulating in the community. So this is about antimicrobial resistance. All those bugs that are circulating out there, how common are they? If you get invited to participate, get over your qualms, submit a sample because we need to know what's going on in people who are otherwise fit and well. I think they're looking for 2,000 people. Um big new research study we need to know more about bugs
0: uh, okay this is antimicrobial resistance so you know how way, better ways of tackling bacteria that don't then respond to the medicines so you know when um when my son had scarlet fever uh during oh, yeah. the easter holidays you know he tr- we tried to fight he tried to fight it off couldn't couldn't quite so had some penicillin and you know, and it, when it worked. But yeah. you know, if the drugs don't work, we have a problem. I, I, when I was had the public health brief, I was had the international health brief in government. And I, I once did a big uh, presentation to the G20 in Argentina with Sally Davies, who's Chris Whitty's predecessor mm. as the chief medical officer about AMR. Of AMR. And we should talk to Sally one time about AMR because, yeah. gosh, she's brilliant on the subject. She's absolutely Brilliant on the subject. Um, she'd be she'd be a good fun guest on the pod. And um, yeah, AMR is potentially people always say, "Oh, the next pandemic is is going to come around the corner you you could argue that the next pandemic is already here and yeah. it's antimicrobial resistance yeah
1: yeah occasionally see patients in surgery and we suddenly realize we have got no drugs to give them we have nothing that we can give in the community to treat their infected leg ulcer that's the that's the commonest place for these infections that we see and then they've got to go into hospital for intravenous drugs so we're already yeah. seeing it on a daily basis uh, and it's getting worse anyway
0: uh, so much more to, as ever we, we could talk all night but um i gotta go vote uh, and you gotta go back to surgery i'm sure so look thanks so much for listening we really appreciate all your support all your messages uh we've touched on some of the stuff that we might cover in future but we definitely do diabetes special so if you're interested in that subject you've got experience of living with that subject please contact us um and questions for the pod surgery um podcast at stevebryan.com or find prevention is the new cure on social media and message us that way and till next time, Helen. God bless. See you again.
1: Take care. Bye.